Amen. It is good to hear your voices. Thanks for joining us tonight again. We are gathered here to remember the death of Christ. And to do that, what I want to do is I want to to help us think all the way back to the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created man and woman in his own image. And he created them to glorify God by bearing his image and walking in perfect, unhindered relationship with him. And he placed the man and the woman in this beautiful garden where they could enjoy him in his creation and experience his rest. And he told them, you can eat from any fruit in the tree of the garden, except for this one tree, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from that tree, he said, you will die. And the serpent came, Satan came to Eve and deceived Eve and said, no, surely you won't die. And so she, take, she took the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her. And at that moment, sin, rebellion against God, the creator and king of the universe, was born. And sin, what it did is it created a barrier between God and his people. See, God's people could no longer walk in unhindered relationship with him. They could no longer enjoy God in his creation and experience his rest. And because Adam and Eve had sinned, they were cast out of the garden away from the presence of the Lord. And from that moment on, sin would be woven into the fabric of every human heart. In fact, the human race became so sinful that God wiped them out with a worldwide flood. Every human on the face of the planet, because of their sin and rebellion against a holy and righteous God, was put to death, except for Noah and his family. And through Noah and his family, God then restored his creation. And several generations then, after Noah, we have a man named Abraham. And God called Abraham out of a pagan lifestyle and promised that he would make him into a great nation and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. It's through Abraham and his offspring that the nation of Israel was formed. And God made a covenant with this people. He gave them his law. He told them that if they carefully follow everything that he had instructed them, that they would receive life and blessing. But if they disobeyed, that they would experience hardship and be cut off from life with God. The Israelites couldn't do it. They failed to uphold God's law. They could not walk in consistent, faithful obedience to God. Time and time again, they failed to walk in obedience. And there's a reason for this. It's, it's because even though humanity was wiped out by the flood, the condition of the human heart remained the same. See, sin was still woven into the fabric of every human heart. And so even though God gave the Israelites the law, even their greatest attempts to uphold it fell short. And in response to this, a system of atonement through animal sacrifice was embedded into this covenant. So for centuries, God's people lived under this law and sacrificial system. And day after day and year after year, God's people made sacrifices, animal sacrifices for their sins so that they might be forgiven. Day after day after day after day after day, this would take place. And the reason is because there was no such thing as a perfect sacrifice. See, the animal given for the sacrifice, would act as a substitute. Death, the just punishment for sin, was administered to this perfect animal instead of the sinner. But no animal 
was a sufficient substitute. No animal could take away the sins of humanity once and for all. And so year after year after year after year and day after day after day after day, animals were sacrificed. Until one day, God sent his son to be the sacrifice. God the Son came to earth as a baby. He was born on the outskirts of this obscure little town in a village, in a barn to an unsuspecting virgin and her soon-to-be husband. And God the Son was fully divine, but had now taken on humanity in all of its fullness. And then Jesus grew. Luke tells us that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. And then when Jesus was around 30 years old, his earthly ministry began. He was baptized. He was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And then he returned to Galilee. He called his disciples and he began to teach people about the kingdom of God. He performed miracles and he healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He calmed storms. He drove out demons and he raised the dead. You know that Jesus' life was so significant that the Apostle John, in his gospel, he ends by saying that if we could write down everything noteworthy that Jesus did, not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. But this is not why Jesus came. See, God the Son did not come just to do good on earth. He didn't come just to set an example for us on how we are to love and serve one another. The Jews were convinced that Jesus had come to free them from the oppressive Roman rule. He hadn't come for that either. See, Jesus came to die. Jesus came to be the perfect sacrifice. And he knew this. From the very beginning of time, he knew this. Throughout his ministry, he explicitly told his disciples on three separate occasions that he would have to die. Right before Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, he says this. He says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that was written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him and he will rise on the third day. Jesus told his disciples that everything, everything that was written about him through the prophets would come to fulfillment. What was he talking about? There are many, many prophecies about Christ throughout the Old Testament. I want to draw your attention to two of them tonight before we get into our text. Psalm 22. If you have your Bibles, feel free to flip to Psalm 22, looking at verse 6. It says this, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. Or consider Isaiah 53. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, starting in verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, 
struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Further down in Isaiah 53, in verse 12, it tells us that Jesus was counted among the rebels. He was counted among the rebels. You know, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, they were written centuries before the life of Jesus. And upon entering Jerusalem, Jesus tells his disciples that what was predicted about him is about to take place. Every aspect of it. And we get to our text in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32 tonight. And as we look at Luke 23, or elements of Luke 23, what I want us to do is I want us to see the fulfillment of these scriptures. And I want us to see the fulfillment of these scriptures in three different ways. I want us to see, number one, the humiliation of the cross. Number two, I want us to see the eradication of the curtain. And number three, I want us to see the anticipation of the kingdom. The humiliation of the cross, the eradication of the curtain, and the anticipation of the kingdom. We see these as we look at Luke 23. See, what the scriptures predicted and what came to fulfillment at the end of Jesus' life, it was not just death. It was not just death. It was a death of complete and unbridled humiliation. This humiliation, it comes to light in the first verse of our passage. In Luke 23, it says that two other criminals were led away to be crucified with him, to be executed with Jesus. Isaiah told us he would be numbered among the rebels. Well, here we are. Jesus is being numbered among the rebels as he's led away to his death. This innocent, spotless, perfect, blameless son of God in the lineup considered as a criminal. And then in verse 33, it says, When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there. You know, leading up to this point, a lot of things have happened. Jesus had been betrayed by one of his disciples. He was arrested. He was forced to stand before Jewish leaders. And then the men who arrested him, they blindfolded him. They beat him. They berated him. He was accused of blasphemy by the religious elite. And he was sent then over to Pilate, the Roman ruler of the region, to be sentenced to death. And during that time, the Roman soldiers, they took something like a whip, a handle which had had several cords or lashes coming out of it, and laced into these cords were sharp fragments of bone and metal. And the Roman soldiers used this to just wail on Jesus' bare back, unrelentingly shredding his flesh and exposing his muscle, muscle tissue and bones and nerves. And then they took thorny stems and twisted these stems together into a crown and pressed this crown into Jesus' skull. And then they took Jesus and they dressed him up in a purple robe to make a mockery of his royalty. And they spat in his face and they smacked him on the head. After they had had their fun, they put his clothes back on him and then they forced him to carry the crossbeam of his execution with the help of a man named Simon in a procession of criminals up the mountain to the place where he would be crucified. This would have been a spectacle. 
When he arrived there, they laid him down. They took large metal stakes, and they drove these large metal stakes into his hands and into his feet, and they secured him to the cross. And the humiliation was not over. As he was raised up on the cross and he hung there bleeding, he was mocked. He was mocked by the leaders of the Jews. Look in verse 35. The people stood watching. And even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The leaders of the nation that God had promised to bring forth from Abraham. The people that God had led out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness. The one that he had made this covenant with. God's chosen people. The one that they had promised this Messiah to. They stood there. The leaders stood there and they mocked their Messiah as he hung in agony on the cross. And the Roman soldiers, they also mocked Jesus. Verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Not only that, the criminal crucified alongside Jesus used his final breaths of life to humiliate Jesus. Verse 39. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Psalm 22. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. See, this is the humiliation of the cross. That was endured by Jesus. It was endured by Jesus. The one to whom all authority in heaven and earth had been given. It was endured by Jesus. The image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. The one by whom and through whom everything in heaven and on earth was created. The one who is before all things and holds all things together. The one that has first place in everything. The one through whom God has revealed himself to us. You know, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. This is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And here he hangs with the criminals, mutilated and exposed and bloody and gasping for breath, mocked and ridiculed and utterly despised. How could this be? I mean, isn't that the question you would ask yourself if you were one of his disciples and you were there and you were seeing this whole spectacle take place? Wouldn't you just ask yourself, God, how can this be? How can you let this happen? If I were there, that is the question that would be going through my mind. God, how can this be? And I don't think that's the right question to ask. I think the better question to ask It is why. Why, God? 
You know the answer to this question? It's in our passage. It's in the eradication of the curtain. We're going to explain this, but look with me in verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three. Because the sun's light failed, the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. You know, when Jesus was born, a bright star lit up the night sky. As Jesus died, darkness overwhelmed the midday sky. And as this darkness fell, something amazing happened. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Matthew, in his gospel, adds the, deal, adds the detail that it was torn in two from top to bottom. You know, many scholars, they estimate that this curtain was about 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. If, uh, if you know my son, Weston, he's, this is about 15 Westons, okay? Just to give you an idea. That's how tall this curtain would be. 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, a thickness of about four inches. This was not your typical shower curtain. It was impenetrable. It was massive. And it served a very, very important purpose. This curtain separated people from the presence of God. It was the barrier between the people and the presence of God. Why would people need to be separated from the presence of God? One word. Sin. Sin. See, God is holy. We are unholy. Every single one of us here has rebelled against God. Remember, twisted into the fabric of our hearts is pride and idolatry and lust and greed and addiction and gluttony and hatred and envy and bitterness and dishonesty. No one is righteous. See, our unrighteousness separates us from God. But what we must come to realize is that we are not just separated from God because of our sin, period. We are separated from God because of our sin and we are cast into a real place of eternal destruction called hell. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, it says they, they meaning those who do not know God, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from His glorious strength. Last Sunday, Tim shared that our sin has incurred for us a mountain of debt. A mountain of debt that we cannot repay. That's absolutely right. And because of this, the just punishment for our sin, it is eternal destruction away from God in a place called hell. See, those who do not know God, who are separated from God because of their sin, they will suffer the wrath of God for all of eternity without hope of escape. And when they've been there a million years, they will be no closer to the end. And to be 
completely honest with you, I have a hard time contemplating this reality. But it is a reality. It is a reality. To be separated from God is to face the eternal, unquenchable fire of his judgment. If if this seems extreme, there's something that I think is helpful to understand. It's that the punishment for our sin is in response not only to our sin, but also in response to who we have sinned against. You know, the other day I was sitting outside with my four-year-old daughter. And she looked and she saw an ant crawling on my leg. And she reached over and she said, I'm going to kill that ant. And she did. You know what I did? Nothing. It's an ant. Kill the ant. But what if she had some sort of ninja powers and she saw a squirrel? And she was somehow able to wrangle a squirrel... And she said the same thing. She goes, I'm going to kill this squirrel with my bare hands. I might try to stop her, mostly because that just seems a little inappropriate for a four-year-old to try to kill a squirrel with their bare hands. But what if she said the same thing about a human? What What if someone had the same intent to treat a human being the very same way my daughter treated the ant? See, the behavior is the same, but we would do anything in our power to stop that from happening because it's, it's, it's horrific. See, the behavior is the same. It's the taking of life. But do you see how the severity of sin, it's not measured by the deed as much as it is measured by the, who the deed is against. And we have sinned against a holy, righteous, pure, just all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, eternal creator God. We deserve eternal separation from God, not just because of what we have done, but because of who God is. And this is why. This is why God allowed his perfect, holy, and blameless son to bear the pain and the shame of the cross. See, Jesus bore the wrath of the Father that our sin deserves. As he hung there on the, on the cross, he, he breathed his last. For the first time in all of eternity, the perfect son of God was separated from the presence of the Father. Perfect Jesus became sin. The wrath that our sin deserves, it was poured out on him. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. And in this moment, as Jesus was crushed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God removed the barrier. Punishment for our peace was on him. It was for our peace that we could then be reconciled back to God the Father. The eradication of the curtain was a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. By the blood of Jesus, we have been granted access back into the presence of God where we find peace. Ephesians 2, verse 12, it says, At that time you were without Christ, 
excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, you were once far away, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, you have not been rescued from the judgment that your sin deserves through your good works or through your right intentions or through your respectable efforts. We are brought back into the presence of God by the blood of Christ and absolutely nothing else. The reason we have forgiveness of sins is because Jesus paid for them on the cross. And because, because of the humiliation of the cross, because that the curtain has been eradicated for all time, we can now live in joyful anticipation of the kingdom. In verse 50 of our text, we read about a man named Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea. In verse 50, here's what it says. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Christ in his gospel. And it was secret because he feared the Jews. But what this means is that throughout Jesus' ministry, Joseph would have listened to Jesus. He heard his teachings and he believed what he had said. He saw Jesus for who he was. And when he hung on the cross, he trusted him. And this man, he was not the only one to look forward to the kingdom in our passage. As, as Jesus hung on the cross, he was numbered among the transgressors. There was a criminal on his right and his left. And one of the criminals mocked him. But in verse 40 of our text, if you look back up in verse 40, it says this. The other answered, rebuking him. The other criminal, rebuking the other criminal, says this. Don't you even fear God, since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. One criminal mocked Jesus. The other criminal saw Jesus for who he was, the innocent Son of God. And in seeing Jesus for who he was, he anticipated the kingdom. And in a way, these criminals are a representation of each of us. See, like the criminals, we stand condemned for our sin. One criminal rejected the lordship of Christ and suffered the due penalty for his sin, eternal separation from God in hell. The other criminal submitted to the lordship of Christ and received the forgiveness of sins that could be purchased only by his blood and was welcomed into eternal union with Christ in paradise. Which criminal are you? See, if you've come to see Jesus for who he is, the Son of God, you have come to see the cross of Christ as your only hope for salvation. If you have responded to the gospel message in faith and repentance and trusting Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then like the second criminal and like Joseph, you too can look forward to the coming kingdom. And tonight... 
we do not want to forget that the crucifixion of Christ is part of the larger gospel message. We don't want to forget that his crucifixion has enabled us to be reconciled with God. That we are now, because of the crucifixion of Christ, able to be in God's presence and experience the fullness of joy and life with him. But we're also here tonight to remember that the reason we are able to experience the fullness of joy and life with him It is because of the unspeakable pain and humiliation that Jesus endured on the cross for us. At this time, 